Good morning. Let's just pray together. Lord, as we come to look at your word this morning, and as we prepare ourselves later in this service to take communion, we pray that you would speak to us, work in our lives, reveal to us more of what it means to be belonging to the Lord. Amen. Now, the title for our sermon there on the screen for you, Centered in Community. Remember, we're going through MBC, and we've got to C, which is Centered in Community, and then, as a subsection, we're going through Wales. Remember this? Welcoming... Authentic, authentic <laughs> loving, expectant, and serving. Today we're on expectant. We've only got one more sermon to, to go in this rather prolonged series going through our values. And uh, Nigel will be coming in a couple of weeks' time, in fact, yes, two weeks' time, to preach on serving. But today I'm going to preach on expectant. Now, you may wonder when the sermon begins how I'm going to talk about being expectant. Hang on in there. It will be clear when we get to the last point of the sermon. Imagine you've just um, moved into the area and you're sort of um, looking for a church to join. And uh, you come to a church, and um, not necessarily this one. I wouldn't want you to think that I'm describing this church. But you, you visit a church, and uh, uh, all looks is wonderful. You know, the, the worship is really good. Then you notice that if you come for several weeks, there's only a third of the congregation present each week. And then you begin to realize why. Because there are three leaders in the church, and each leader has got his own following. And as you get to know the church a bit more, you discover that, um, well, two of the members are living in uh, an incestuous relationship together. Another two are taking each other to court. Um, and the worship services, well, I mean, they may have a good band, but there's so much noise. Um, in this church, for some reason, the women sit on one side of the aisle and the men sit on the other side of the aisle. And... Um, the wives call out to their husband during the service and interrupt everybody. It's very disorganized. This is not the sort of church that you really want to join. Shall I give you the address of that church? It's in Corinth in the first century AD. And St. Paul writes to the church in Corinth and given the sort of chaotic nature of the church. He obviously sees a lot of potential in that church because he writes for us one of the two sort of accounts we have in Scripture about what we would call the institution of communion or the institution of the Lord's Supper. And these words are quite familiar to us. We often read them out at the beginning of a communion service. Or if we don't read out this version, we read out a very similar version that comes in the Gospel of Luke. Now, it's interesting. Each of the four Gospels deals with the institution of the Lord's Supper, um, the Passover meal that Jesus took with his disciples, and uh, going on from there, uh, his progress to the cross and, and so on, and his resurrection. But only Luke of the four Gospels gives us the words which we have on the screen in front of us, do this in remembrance of me. 
And Luke only says it once. It's Paul here in this bit of teaching to the Corinthians where he actually says twice, do this in remembrance of me. Now here's a rather interesting thing. So Luke and Paul, these are the two sources for our understanding about the communion service and what Jesus did and how Jesus told us to remember him in the bread and the wine. But what they've got in common is they were written by two people who were not present when the communion service was instituted. Both Luke and Paul had to gain that information um, from other disciples who were there, or perhaps in Paul's case, even by direct divine revelation, because he says, I received from the Lord this instruction. Anyway, let's read it now. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. They're quite well-known words to us. So, what do you make of communion? Do you look forward to a communion service? Is it, is it one of the three Ds? Is it dreary? Is it your duty? Or is it actually a delight to come and take bread and wine and celebrate the Lord's death in that way? Different churches have got different ways of doing it, of course. And uh, to some extent, that's, uh, that's shown in their architecture. My, my son-in-law, our son-in-law, is an Anglican priest. And if you go to his church, you will find that the communion table and the altar are absolutely central in the church. You go into the church, you look down the length of the church, and there, at the far end, central, is the communion table. And uh, the, uh, the, the lectern and the preaching desk, the pulpit, are, are are to one side. So I suppose what that tells you in the, the sort of architecture of the church is that communion is the central point. Meeting with God at the communion table is the central point. Hearing the preaching of the word, that's good, but it's slightly to one side. Come to uh, this church when it was first built before we messed around with it inside and we had a pulpit in the center behind those two windows, high up, several steps down to a platform on which was the communion table, and then several more steps down to uh, the, the congregational level. You can see photos of that um, as it used to be on our website. And that's the way an awful lot of nonconformist churches were set up. And what were they? They were set up so that they said, look, you know, the essential thing, the focal point, the central point is the preaching of the word from the pulpit. And at, you could argue at a slightly lower level, but also central, was the communion table. I don't know what we're going to make of our own setup here where the communion table is pushed to one side in the corner to make way for the worship band. I don't think there's, I don't think there's any um, theological um, uh, significance in that at all. Right. Let's think about communion.
We get very few instructions in the Bible about communion. We're not told how often to uh, celebrate communion. We're not told what sort of bread to use, what sort of wine to use, uh, who is allowed to officiate at communion. But we are told what we've got on the screen in front of us. So we're going to look at um, six points based on this passage. Actually, the first point isn't based on this passage. It's based on the words that come immediately before this. I alluded to the fact that um, Paul (laughs) thought there were problems in the church at Corinth when he wrote to them. And one of the problems that I didn't mention earlier is that they took communion as a full-on meal. So it was a meal with several courses and, of course, lots of wine. You brought your own food to the communion service. It wasn't like today where it's provided for you. You brought your own food, and if you were rich, you brought a lot of food, and you brought a lot of wine. And um, you weren't going to let anyone else share your food and your wine. You drank your wine, you ate your food, and if you brought a lot of wine, you drank a lot of it. And the service became a little bit rowdy. And that's obviously not what Jesus intended, and it's not what Paul appreciates. So we're just going to look at the need to look around before we take communion and to restore fellowship. These are the verses that come immediately before the passage which institutes the Lord's Supper. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. Because of the way they were self-indulgently twisting the meaning of the Lord's Supper, there were divisions in the church, divisions based upon some people being rich, some people being poor, some people being able to hold their alcohol, some people not. And the unwillingness to share at the point of taking uh, the, the communion service. So what Paul says is that you need to make sure that there are no divisions in the body of Christ before you come together for communion. We might just pause. There's a little bit in Matthew where it says that if you're going to bring your gift to the altar and you're aware that someone has something against you, you are to go and sort it out with them before you bring your gift, because your gift will not be acceptable if someone has something against you. Not if you have something against them, but if they have something against you. We need to make sure, today and every time we take communion, that we are in good fellowship with each other, that there are not unspoken tensions between us that need to be resolved because we need to come together for communion as one body, not as being divided. So although I put the second point up on the screen at this point, I think we just pause for a minute and just think about that first point. We always need to prepare ourselves and make sure that we are in good fellowship with each other. Let's just pause and think about that for a second. If in your heart you need to pray for somebody, put things right in your mind before taking communion, let's just do that before we move on to our second point.
Right, our second point is that the communion service, the Lord's Supper, gives us a chance to look back and remember. God gives us instructions about the Lord's Supper. Twice in this passage, he says that you are to do this in remembrance of me. Now, to remember is more than just to recall you know, that's what you used to do in exams at school. You know, you'd, you'd um, learn something, you'd revise it, you'd recall it during the exam. This is more than that. To remember is to recapture the reality and the significance of the event and to savor it anew. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, what he wants us to do, what we're invited to do, is to live through those moments of betrayal, crucifixion, agony. And we live through them with him in order to be grateful, in order to get the measure of what it cost Jesus on that cross. So we look back we remember, we do this in remembrance of him. The third point is before we take communion, as well as looking around, looking back, we need to look within at our own hearts. Now that's in the passage of scripture that comes immediately after our text, so I'll put that up on the screen. These are the words that come immediately after the institution of the Lord's Supper that we've just looked at. He says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Here's the bit. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. There is a need to take stock of where we are, to examine ourselves before we come and take communion. We examine our thoughts and our motivations and our actions. For, for example, we examine our heart in terms of our salvation. Have we really given ourselves to God? Is he really our saviour? Is he really our Lord? Are we surrendered to him? We examine our relationships with each other. Are we treating those in our church family with kindness, humility, gentleness, respect, love. And we examine our attitude, our attitude to the act of taking communion. I said at the beginning, it could be um, one of the three Ds. It could be dreary, it could be duty, or it could be a delight. We examine our attitude. And when we've examined ourselves and put ourselves right with God, then we are in a fit state to take communion. So we look around, we look back, we look inwardly, and then we look up. We look up to renew our commitment to the Lord. Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new agreement in my blood. It is the new contract between God and humanity. 
Now, I've signed very few contracts in my life. I did sign a wedding register once. I don't know if that was a contract. Um, oh, yes, yes, it had, it had little things in it, like for better, for worse, for richer, for... Oh, yes, that's right, yes. Um, but um, I bought a house twice, only twice. We bought a house. And I seem to remember that in the rather lengthy contract... Um, there are two parties. There's the party of the first part and there's the party of the second part. Why, why they're not called just the first and second party, I don't know, but I suppose lawyers make money that way. Um, so the party of the first part is the person selling the property and the party of the second part is the person buying the property. And so the party of the first part agrees that on payment of a consideration from the second part, then uh, the ownership of the property will pass to the, the second person, and so on. It, it works two ways. The first part has to give up their ownership of the property in, in exchange for money. The party of the second part, if they want to enjoy the property, they have to give the money over. That's the deal. That's what a contract is all about. Each side of the contract has um, a part to play, has um, a responsibility. So it is between us and God. This cup is the new contract, the new agreement between the person of the first part, God, and the person of the second part, you and me. God has given himself to us fully, unconditionally, in the death of Jesus. But there's a contract with us. We have a part to play if we belong to him. We need to be faithful to him, to his word. We need to live in a godly lifestyle that um, commends the gospel. So perhaps what we need to do occasionally before we come to communion is just remind ourselves that we're in that covenant relationship with God and just sort of in our hearts renew our commitment to the standards and the values that he's called us to. Just pause for a minute and let that sink in before we move on to our fifth point. And then we are to look ahead and rejoice. Let's look at it again. Wherever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the bit that I want to concentrate on, those last three words, until he comes. Yes, when we take communion, we look back at what happened 2,000 years ago at Calvary. We look inwardly at what God is doing in our lives now. But we remind ourselves, and Simon did it so um, eloquently when he prayed just now, that, you know, life is a mess at the moment. We look at the television news and we are in despair quite frequently. We look at our um, government leadership and, you know, we can despair that we need to be led by people of integrity, and so on. But the good news of the gospel, in part, 
is that this is not the end. This is not the way life will be forever. God will return. God will put things right. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth and in heaven. And there will be a time when God's will is done on earth and God's standards are universally um, accepted and recognized on earth. And we look forward to that day. And honestly, as you get older and as you watch the television news, you look forward to it that much more enthusiastically. Uh, I can remember as a student, I was very involved in student drama as a student. And uh, I can remember working on a particular production in the Oxford Playhouse and praying privately. I said, Lord, you know, it would be great if you returned, but if you could just delay it a week so we can get this production of, um, you know. Because it was, it was very important to me at the time, you know, that, that particular um, drama production that I was involved in. It's funny how as you get older, you don't put that bit in your prayer. You say, Lord, Lord, come. You know, we're not in a hurry to do anything else first. We just want you to come and put this world to rights. So our fifth point is that we are to look ahead and we are to affirm that God has the future of this world in his hands, that all is not lost. There will be a time when God returns and when things are put right. And now we come to the bit where the title of the sermon makes sense. Because we are expectant in that we expect the Lord to return. But this is in the context of reaching out to our community. So here's our last point, which is about that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is something that can be proclaimed through our communion service. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now you proclaim it, not just to each other, but you proclaim it to the world around. You proclaim it to the citizens of Minchinhampton, to the people in the street where you live, to the people that you work alongside. You proclaim the Lord's death. Have you ever been into the, um, the downstairs room next door, what we used to call the Ford Lounge, and then we called it the church office, and now I don't know what we call it now. We call it the room next door. Um, if you're in that room and you leave it to come back out into the entrance hall, you will see on the back of the door, or above the door, can't quite remember, it says 94%. And that's just a reminder to us every time we step out of church that 94% of the people that we're going to meet are people who don't go to church, who are in relative or even complete ignorance of the message of Jesus. 94%. And they need to know that Jesus died for them. So our communion service, as well as our preaching, as well as our lifestyle, is a way of demonstrating what is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for us, for each one of us. So I just want to take a little detour now and talk about um, the gospel being good news Every aspect of the gospel is good news. 
And it's good news that you can share over the garden fence with your neighbor or by email with a friend or on Zoom or however, or uh, with a, at a cup of coffee, you know. Um, people have different problems. For an awful lot of us, the problem is loneliness. Now, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to live as a human being. He knows what it's like to live like you and me. Part of the gospel message that we can share is that because Jesus was human just as we are human, he knows what we're going through. That's good news. That's part of the gospel. Obviously, one of the central points of the gospel, um, because we are... um, sort of centered on the cross, is that Jesus died for us. And he died for our sins, so that our guilt is dealt with. We can look God in the eye, because God has made us righteous through Christ. So our past is dealt with. Now, some of us have got fairly innocuous pasts, and some of us have got really quite You know, when we look back, pasts that weigh us down, our memory of things that we did in the past or things that were done to us, weighs us down. The good news is that Jesus has dealt with our past. All that has been nailed to the cross with him. That's good news for us and for the 94% of people that we meet. The resurrection is good news. The resurrection is good news because there is hope for life now. I often take the example, our eldest son is an airline pilot, and he's on long haul these days. Um, But when he was on short haul, he used to do um, London to Aberdeen fairly frequently. Uh, Now, a little bit of technical detail here. Um, Aberdeen is quite a short runway, 1,400 meters. And... uh, Tim used to say, well, you know, you you rev up at the end of the runway and um, down at the end of the tarmac, you can see the town. Now, he says, you know, there is a tremendous incentive to get off the ground before you hit the town. The thing is, if you live in two dimensions, you can go along that 1,400 meters of runway and you come to the end of it and slap bang, you hit the granite walls of Aberdeen. But if you live in three dimensions, you start off, you rev up fully, you go halfway down the runway, and then you rotate. And then what do you know? You're in a different dimension, and you don't hit the walls of Aberdeen, and you fly successfully back to Heathrow. The point is, there is an extra dimension. The extra dimension is the resurrection of Jesus, stuff which looks hopeless, is no longer hopeless because Jesus is raised from the dead. God has the power to lift us out of situations that seem hopeless. There's more. Next week is Pentecost Sunday or Whit Sunday. The coming of the Holy Spirit is good news because it means that God has given us, within us, his spirit, power to transform our lives, power to deal with those... um, recurrent sins and uh, problems that we don't seem to be able to break out of. You know, perhaps by nature you're a very bad-tempered person. Hey, God through his Holy Spirit can change that. 
Perhaps by nature, you're very pessimistic. God, through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, can change that and does change it. Pentecost is good news. And, of course, as we just said a moment ago, the return of Jesus in the future. That is good news. That is going to put this world to rights. God is going to establish not just a new heaven, but a new earth. This world will be as God intended it to be. That's good news. Everything about the gospel is good news. It's good news it should make us feel warm inside, but it should help us to communicate with the 94% of people outside because there is power in the gospel. So our communion service, amongst other things, is something that enables us to look outwards beyond ourselves and proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes.